Hi everyone, welcome to Cyber Sierra Safe Tech Talk series. Today we have with us a very esteemed professional whose name is Charles Gilman. Charles is a highly skilled cybersecurity professional with a career spanning more than two decades. He has made significant contributions to the industry and built a reputation as a leader and expert in the field. Charles' work experience includes holding Chief Information Security Officer roles in the financial services and cloud and managed services sectors. He has also built and led information security teams in major banks, providing him with a comprehensive understanding of the current security landscape. Throughout his career, Charles has been actively involved in the cybersecurity community and shared his insights and participated in discussions on topics such as GRC, which stands for Governance Risk Compliance, CISO roles, cybercrime, cybersecurity, and information security. His expertise encompasses security consulting, ethical hacking, cybercrime research, security architecture, and security operations. In his current role as CISO at SuperChoice, Charles is responsible for ensuring effective cybersecurity and mitigating risks. He faces the evolving challenges of cyber threats and develops strategies to manage and minimize risk while keeping up with the latest security trends and technologies. All of these make up for the setting for a fantastic discussion that I look forward to having with you, Charles. I'll be diving into your history, your journey, and also asking you forward-looking questions. Thank you for joining us on this show. Right. Thank you, Pramod, for having me. Perfect. Let us dive right into this. One of the things that you have looked closely at is GRC, Governance, Risk, and Compliance. So as a category, it seems to be evolving recently. What problems, let's start with the problems, right? Because things evolve when, when there are problems and they go towards a better state. So what problems do you see with a GRC tool? You know, what does it need to get right these days? Look, um, I think one of the biggest problems I've seen uh, historically is when a GRC uh, tool tries to be standalone, they really need to integrate with systems, especially, uh, in my opinion, things like ticketing systems. Um, and the, the GRC tool really needs to start working the way that the business works, not the other way around. And, and look, and, and I've seen GRC projects fail because they didn't introduce or they didn't integrate with existing tool sets. Um, they were basically like a technology island that no one wanted to go and visit. So, you know, you need to look at your approach to risk management as well when you're rolling out a, a GRC tool. And because the tool is going to make you more efficient, reduce friction and workload and guide you through a process, but it's not going to fix something um, that was broken in the first place. So there's no point in automating a, a, a broken process. You need to make sure that you've got those processes right and what you want to get out of the tool upfront before you go and uh, implement that tool. Thanks for sharing. I'll come back to GRC in a bit. Um, as you were speaking one question that crossed my mind was what motivated you to get started in, in cybersecurity as a domain and then specialize in it? Uh, I think I really fell into it by accident. I was working for a company that was doing some website integrations uh, for some large companies and they kept asking us, uh, you know, how are you building security into this? How are you making sure it's secure? Uh, and that really sparked my interest in security. Um, and it was from there that I actually ended up going and doing like an ethical hands-on hacking course. And that, that just really opened my eyes. And I decided I didn't want to be a defender. I wanted to be an attacker. Um, and I, I moved into security there with a view to try and get into something like penetration testing. Beautiful. And so began your journey into this world. It's changed quite a bit, I imagine, over the past two decades. Can you talk a little bit about the changes that you that you have personally been through? It was a lot simpler. We were really looking back then at 
you know, hacktivists and website defacements and script kiddies. And I think it was only really later on that, that the cyber criminals entered into that domain. So I've really seen that, that change from, you know, people kind of hacking almost out of interest and, you know, just almost nuisance value through to now seeing these full um, cyber criminal gangs that are, you know, quite organized. Yeah. And the way they're organized, I mean, if I were to share my journey, I, I spent about 10 years building companies. And, and then I thought, you know, there's information security was always at the edge of my radar. I know that is important, but when you're building companies, your goal is to go to market and, and drive competitive advantages there. And so when I, when I went through our first breach in one of the companies I was building, that's when information security came front and center into my world. And, and now it's like a mission, right? What I've noticed is the, the other side is, is very, very organized and also loosely coupled. So this is an interesting uh, setup. You have people who are as young as maybe 10, 11 years old, who are just you know, having fun in their parents' homes, hacking away, but hacking away at big companies, right? You also have on the other end, nation states that are very organized, ranked officials who are conducting cybersecurity attacks. You know, they can take the time. It's, it's not like a one-time thing. It's like something that they can be at working on for years and years before they get the outcomes that they want, right? From your point of view, I'm sure you have seen both sides, right? How can we set up businesses to defend against such a risk? I think every business now needs some level of security function. Uh, if we look at the, the very small organizations, um, maybe they've outsourced that. But I think every organization needs a security function that's looking across the business holistically to go and address the threats and working in, in preference against a framework whether that's something as simple as NIST CSF or, you know, ISO 27001 or right up to, you know, things like SOC 2. So I think having that framework, not that compliance gives you security, um, but it help, helps you to enable security and certainly measure security. Yes. So compliance doesn't mean security, like you said, and security doesn't mean compliance. But what you're, what you're saying is it gives you the framework now to start thinking about it and organizing ourselves. And, and this is important for businesses of all sizes, is, is your point of view? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's having that structure and that framework um, to work against is very important. Okay. So then let's come back to this GRC topic. Um, there is an aspect where there's a discussion that we have been having with some of our partners and also internally at Cyber Sierra. Is it useful to have point solutions or is it useful to have like an overarching solution that, that looks to solve a, a, a set of uh, problems, you know, within one solution, right? I'm not naming tools and companies, but what I'm trying to say is, is it better for, for us to look at a company and say, hey, solve this specific problem for me? Or should we look at companies uh, from a CISO perspective and say, you know what, if your tool is solving a, a broad areas or broad area of problems, I'm interested. How, how's your point of view? Oh, definitely. Um... As a CISO, I think I want less vendors. I want less dashboards, and I will I will take a solution that's maybe eighty or ninety percent as good from an existing vendor rather than trying to integrate and bring on board another vendor. And I think there's a lot to be said for the cloud the cloud service providers. You know, your, your big public clouds, where they've got a lot of those security controls already built into their platforms that you can leverage already. Uh, and, and I think too often we see people deploying security controls that overlap with other security controls and we're maybe not always using the features 
um, or the tool to its fullest extent before we go out and, and start looking at, at other tools or other point solutions. So I would rather a very large integrated solution that maybe isn't as good as individual point solutions, but if I've kind of got one dashboard, one console and one vendor to deal with, um, for me, that's preferable. Otherwise, we end up with a lot of technology sprawl uh, and, and too many of these overlapping controls that we're not necessarily getting the best um, out of. Thanks for sharing this. Let's dive a little bit more into this, right? Because as a CISO, your mind can only take so much before cognitive overload starts to happen. That's right. Uh, when you were working in more mature environments where you know budget was not so much of a constraint, you were able to have teams under you that were specialized in, in different problem areas related to information security. Then when you work for, or when you, when you help companies which are smaller, they may not have the same kind of budget. They may not have the same kind of uh, expertise in their team, but they are still also getting equally targeted because you know, for the state actors and also for uh, the hobbyist hackers, right? Everyone's a target. Wherever you can get in, you go ahead and get in. There are some scripts that are deployed where um, what I've seen is like a database going live within nine minutes getting breached, right? So that can't be human. There must be some kind of script that is running. How, how should we organize ourselves from an InfoSec perspective in a less mature environment? Because I know for a mature environment, there are a lot of mature discussions as well. But for the less mature environment where businesses are waking up to the risk of cyber, what is your recommendation? Like what, what are the first like three to five things that we should look out for? if they are starting to look at cyber seriously? Look, I think the first thing is always to try and do some sort of gap analysis of where the business is compared to its peers or against a framework. So we should really start baselining um, and then look at what is in our risk register or what the current threats are to that business or to that environment or, or just in general what the threat landscape's looking like and then prioritize the security controls based on the risk. So it's always got to be risk-driven. It doesn't matter what size the organization. In terms of how can a smaller company uh, deal with that, there's plenty of companies out there that specialize in consulting um, or, or helping those small to medium-sized enterprises skill up. Um, and we can also build up the skills of our own teams internally. Uh, the, you know, I've often found in many organizations that I've worked in, that there's someone in the engineering team or someone in the operations team that has a keen interest in security. And you can start to use those people uh, like a virtual security team, if you like, because they've got that passion already. Thanks. That would be the base, right? It's, it's, I mean, what you just shared to me, let's take that as the base. Now, we can probably get that in place as quickly as maybe within a month or two months for a small, medium, small or medium-sized business. What else can they do to remain, uh, to grow their resilience in a, in a cyber, uh, in the current cyber environment? How would you iterate this program? You're sort of recommending a program almost. No, I, so I, they, they need some sort of strategy. And, you know, I like to look at a strategy as taking in all of your drivers. And I think you need to start with the business first and the business drivers. What's the business trying to achieve? And how can you actually help the business deliver on those outcomes securely? So it shouldn't necessarily be tools focused. Then we need to start looking, you know, from a risk perspective, what are our critical assets? Because especially if you're a small company, it's going to be difficult to protect every asset, but you really need to protect the assets that matter. You know, where, where are your key data assets? Um, where are the assets that actually generate you revenue? Those are what you should be prioritizing first. That is what you should be protecting. 
Um, and then, you know, if you look at a framework and, you know, I like NIST CSF, you know, you need to be looking at those detect and protect and respond and recover controls for those business critical assets. So that, that's the program that I would start at, looking at my, my threats and risks to my critical assets and then protecting those and then working my way down. But I, I think one of the biggest um, vectors for how attackers get into organisations is really through identities. So that at some point, whether they've exploited a vulnerability, that, that exploit code is running under the context of a user, whether that's the root user or the, on, on Linux or the system user on Windows. We need to start looking at our access and identity management because identity is now the perimeter. It's not the firewall because people are, you know, working remotely, working from home. We've changed how the tools work. You know, if you look at some of the things like um, Microsoft Office 365, you can work on that anywhere. You don't have to be connected to the VPN anymore to, to talk to a mail server or, you know, to, to have a look at your intranet. So I, I think protecting the business assets, understanding the business, and then certainly protecting those identities, having those controls. MFA is a really easy one for a small organization. You know, as you get bigger, um, things like zero trust uh, architectures uh, are certainly the way to go. So really looking at what you're protecting, uh, especially in terms of assets and identities. Charles, you mentioned something which has been trending in our mind uh, quite a bit. Um, but I don't see a lot of businesses doing this yet. This thing about zero trust architectures. Could you help define zero trust and then uh, just share a bit more about, about it? Oh, I don't know that I'm very good at defining zero trust, but what, what it really is about is um, trust no one and still verify them. That, that's kind of my, my shortcut way. So how can we make sure that the person that we're, we're is connecting into our systems is really the person that we want to be connecting into our systems. And we can do that through things like um, multi-factor authentication, um, you know, st starting to move towards passwordless architectures, et cetera. So yeah, that, that's, that's kind of where I think is probably the best way forward with zero trust architectures. You can take it a lot further. We start looking at SASE where we start exposing uh, applications externally in a very secure manner. But yeah, that, that's kind of my two minute zero trust, which is probably not the best description. Oh, that's a great start. Uh, thanks for sharing about it. And zero trust is, is, I think a lot of people, for a lot of folks, it exists at the conceptual level. And then in terms of implementation, it's not yet really in the orgs, right? So I'm trying yeah. to bring practical stuff. Right. It's very much a process, not a product. Yes, process, not a product. And that process needs to be brought into a company, how, through a policy or through a program? Like, is it as simple as, let me set up an information security policy um, and talk about zero trust, or is it a program? Uh, it, I think it's both, because the policy is defining the what, if you like, and that, that security program or that, that security strategy is really defining the how. Uh, and the policy will also be defining the, the why as well. Got it. Thanks for sharing. We've gone quite deep into uh, company. Let's zoom right out and look at this from an ecosystem perspective. And this is actually coming back to one of our discussions we had in the past 
which I was really, it caused a shift in my thinking. And I like to attribute that shift in thinking to you. It was, you know, in our preparation call. So cybersecurity, we know it needs to be taken seriously, but we are working in an environment where there are a lot of penalties. Like if you get this wrong, this is the fine, this is a jail term and, and so on and so forth, right? And I think countries across the world, they are evolving their cybersecurity law and policies um, in, a, in, in a view where there is a lot of penalties in mind. I think you shared something to me. I don't want to steal the thunder to it. Would you please share, you know, what else can we do besides uh, having more penalties? Oh, look, I think we can, you know, certainly educate. So, you know, we need to integrate. We really need to integrate cybersecurity uh, better with the rest of the business. And, you know, too often we're, we're an afterthought, but we can we can also be viewed as techies wearing hoodies. So we need like a cultural shift both ways where, you know, we need to be viewed more as part of the business. And then we also need to start making sure that we're integrating ourselves better as part of the business. So really it's, it's two ways. I think there's also a top down and bottom up approach. So, you know, business leaders like company executives, um, the board and directors need to place more emphasis on cyber and understanding cyber. And I think that's definitely happening. And we also need a better cyber education shift. So not just educating our staff, but maybe starting to educate right back in into high school. So really bringing people up to speed to actually understand what the risks are, because we don't really start teaching people about cyber until maybe they go to university or, or start their, their first role. For cybersecurity to be taken seriously as well, uh, you you spoke about education system uh, that it needs to be to be to be set up in such a way that we are equipped to deal with cyber risk. It's becoming a societal problem. Can you share more what needs to be done in our education system? Look, we need to start educating a lot earlier. Um, I personally would like to see um, cyber training as part of it, like a high school curriculum. Um, you know, it just needs to be another subject along with you know maths and science and science and everything else. So. I did, I did hear someone uh, the other day talking about when they went to school and they learned computers, they learned how to Google. Um, and it's like, I think we've come a long way from there where kid, kids are very technically savvy, but we need to teach them, you know, firstly how to protect themselves online, but then also, um, you know, how they can actually protect the organisations that they work for when they start going out into the workforce. It's just give them the broader context and understanding around cyber. Okay. What's interesting is when I, when I was in school uh, studying computer science, cybersecurity wasn't too much of an emphasis. We're learning how to build, right? Building is, is tough enough, like getting your databases right, programming languages, CS101, uh, networks, so on and so forth, right? Um, I think now we have to also include cyber as part of the CS programs, as well as boot camps. I, I see that shift. I see it offered as an elective. But I think what needs to happen is within each module that we are being taught, especially mandatory modules, we have to have a topic on cyber. Like if you are learning how to set up an endpoint, you have to think about cyber while you're setting up an endpoint. When you're setting up, let's say, uh, a network, you have to think about how to secure it. So cyber and innovation or cyber and building they have to be synonymous i i feel that is that is one that's already started um maybe it'll take like five years or so before you know it comes out into society at large and for the rest of us who are already in the industry we have to pick it up by ourselves by by you know through discussions like this 
Is there anything else that we can do in your in your opinion? No, I really like your idea of um, incorporating cyber just not as a standalone subject, but as an adjunct to everything people are doing, you know, whether that that's, you know, uh, development or building out infrastructure. Uh, and then if you start to look at, you know, some of these agile companies where we've got, uh, you know, these, these full stack developers, um, when we talk about full stack, we actually don't include security in that full stack. Um, and I think that's what, things like um, DevSecOps tries to to address, but it would be good just to make it, to include security in that that full stack description. Thank you. Thanks for sharing this. Switching gears a bit, how's your experience been with cyber insurance? There's all this work we're doing with cybersecurity, right? We work hard day in, day out, right? How's your view on cyber insurance? Uh, thankfully, I've not had to uh, call on it, but uh, I think cybersecurity insurance is really important but maybe not necessarily for the reasons that you, you think of. So most companies, when they're doing, um, you know, business to business transactions will have contracts, you know, master services agreements between them. Um, and they will typically call for a level of cybersecurity insurance as mandatory as part of the contract. And they, they might even define the level of cover that's required. Um, and, and this is to give the, the actual client um, some level of confidence that if the organisation does have a breach that they could actually adequately recover. And so if you do have a breach, you're going to end up having higher uh, premiums. Um, and in the worst case scenario, you might not even be able to renew at all. And, and I think that will certainly affect that ability, that organisation's ability to trade because they can no longer meet the terms and conditions of the contract, which is, you know, to hold a cybersecurity policy. So I think that's certainly an interesting angle on it. I think the premiums are just going to continue going up and cybersecurity insurance isn't necessarily the get out of jail free card that a lot of people think it is. Um, You know, I've heard many times of organisations where they've claimed their cybersecurity insurance and it either gets into you know, this um, protracted um, discussion or, you know, sometimes even legal between the insurer and the organisation as to whether they should pay out or not. And I've heard a couple of times now where the payout has taken three years. So the business has actually really had to self-fund their recovery in that time and, you know, maybe a certain point down the road where that's 12, 24 or 36 months later, then they're actually getting the money money back so it it i don't think it's that golden ticket to to get out of jail free um that people necessarily think it is but it definitely has some upsides so a lot of the cyber insurers have realized their importance especially in things like ransomware and so they will actually make resources available to you so they'll either contract with a company to help you work through that breach and so even if you don't have the, the skills, the forensic skills, they will actually have preferred suppliers or people that you can deal with that can actually help you through that, um, that breach process where you might not have those skills. So there's some really big benefits to it. Thank you for sharing about this. I believe it'll be useful for our audience to hear. What threats are you seeing nowadays that are growing significantly? Oh, it, it, definitely ransomware, but... And I, and I think that will continue, but just ransomware now morphing into extortion and double extortion. So, you know, threatening to release the, the records on the dark web 
or selling those those client records. So I think that's that's certainly growing and will probably continue to grow because that is a potential source of revenue. And these guys are just you know working on earning money. So they don't care how they get their money. Um, so their, their model is just to generate money. So I, so I think that that's certainly going to grow. Um, and that that's definitely a concern. How is it different now than it was five years ago when somebody would you know get into your database, encrypt it, or extract data uh, and ask you for ransom? I think it's changed because the tools have got better at detecting it. And file encryption itself actually creates a lot of um, system IO. So whether that's CPU usage, memory usage, disk IO, and that's a lot easier to detect than, for example, data exfiltration. So I think it's it's easier to detect the, those encryptions. Um, our tools are getting it better at it. And I've actually seen cases in previous roles where those sort of um, actions, the, the file encryptions or the high um, IO, was actually detected by standard monitoring tools. You know, all of a sudden a, a service, um, you know, sitting at 100% CPU or whatever. So a lot easier to detect. So I think there's a real shift to, this is why they're shifting to that, that extortion um, and potentially double extortion by um, doing the data exfiltration rather than just encrypting the data. And the state seems to have evolved in such a way that ransomware is being offered as a service. Like it's, uh, it's, it's gotten so organized that there are, there are tools out there, just like how you have software as a service. Now you have ransomware software as a service. So anyone can just download it and uh, use it and they can share the proceeds without them, without people knowing each other. That's how loosely coupled it is. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, but I think cybercrime as a service has been around for, for quite a while. They, they certainly run it like a business. I don't know if you saw the... Uh, Conti leaks where they were talking about all of the different you know parts of the business like initial access brokers and people that did the negotiations um, with companies but they, they were driving people to incentives and KPIs like they would actually dock people's pay um, you know if they weren't available when they were needed things like that so they're really running it like a business and you can, you can buy different things. So there's people that specialize in breaking in. There are people that specialize in doing the phishing and you know, people specializing right up to the writing the exploit code. Um, and, and so it's, it's run like a business and we, we've really got to treat it like we're dealing with a very well-armed kind of hostile business. And you know, there, there has been cases where um, they've taken people from um, countries, developing countries, or you know the the countries where the wages aren't great, and they're taking some of the top university graduates and then bringing them into the cybercrime organisation because they're going to earn five times what they're going to earn if they went to a job straight away, um, and they have to find the job in the first place. So with an adversary that is so organised and so advanced, I think when normal people hear hear what you said, and it's very important what you said, the reason is. Remember I said earlier in this uh, uh, recording that many years ago, information security was at the edge of my radar. Now it's front and center. I feel that this is a case for many people. It is at the edge that they know it's a risk, but it's not such an observable risk. It's not something that is life-threatening so so much, right? But when it happens, it, it creates all kinds of issues, right? It's so important for you to share what you, what you shared. Once we have understood 
what the adversary is and the range of adversaries that we are dealing with. For the normal person, it might feel overwhelming and you might go like, I should just give up, you know, like uh, digital transformation is nice and good, but maybe I'll just delay it or maybe I'll just uh, do it to a limited extent. And it's a reasonable way to think, uh, to be honest, right? What advice would you have for someone like that? And with, when, I was, when I was asking this question, I was thinking about the work that you have done with other organized outfits that are trying to protect this kind of businesses, the ones that are playing on the, uh, on the good side. Right. I think, I think this is, does maybe the opposite. I think when people realize how organized and determined um, these organizations are, that it should actually, I would like to think, inspire uh, a, a sense of urgency. Uh, and certainly for those organizations that, or you know, individuals that didn't, didn't realize how big the threat was, to go out and seek some of that external advice. And governments are definitely supporting that. Uh, we've, we've, here in Australia, we've got the Australian Cybersecurity Centre. and They do provide a lot of information for those small to medium-sized businesses to help them. Uh, so I think governments are doing what they can, but governments can't, you know, their hands are often tied. So I, I really think it should ignite that sense of urgency in those people rather than the opposite. Because I think if you give in, then, then you've lost. Thank you for sharing this. So personally, as a CISO, you would have been on the receiving end of multiple attempts uh, uh, you know, to breach systems and so on, right? Whether it's under simulation uh, scenario or whether it's an actual attack. What was one of the biggest challenges that you face as a, as a CISO? And therefore, how do you handle it? I think it's working out, especially when you're newer to security, about what really matters in terms of threats. Uh, you know, I remember the, the days when people used to use firewall drops as a metric, you know, we got 5,000 port scans, you know, and, and using that as a metric, that to me is just like background noise on the internet. Now, sure, it can show you that there's, it's a precursor to an attack, but there's just so much noise out there that it's very difficult to pick that kind of needle in a haystack. For me, I think you just need some of those more high fidelity metrics, certainly things like if you can get that, you know, if you can afford to pay for some of those dark web monitoring uh, services and underground threat monitoring services, where you can actually see your infrastructure being targeted, um, whether that's in a chat room or, or your information available uh, on the dark web, I think those are better fidelity uh, or higher fidelity rather uh, metrics for me uh, to start being concerned about. But I think if we worried about every single, you know, network scan or um, web app application scan, um, I think we would never sleep. So we've got to look at what really matters and, you know, what, what is actually behind that? Because a lot of these tax attacks, they're just so numerous and nonstop that they're just background noise now. Got it. And so because there's so much of them uh, that it gets overwhelming, what yeah. emerging technologies are you excited about? Emerging technologies or trends in this space, in your space, in cybersecurity that you're excited about? Oh, definitely AI. Um, I, you know, I think you would be mad not to um, be interested and excited about AI. And from my point of view, certainly what can AI do um, to help security? So, uh, you know, I don't think we've seen the flip side yet of 
how well the bad guys are going to weaponize. But we're certainly seeing um, vendors like Microsoft, who you know now releasing tools like Security Copilot. So if you ever had to deal with the, the Microsoft uh, ecosystem in terms of Azure, uh, Azure AD and M365, there are just so many consoles. So uh, it, it's it's almost overwhelming the number of consoles and trying to find all, all of the different controls and, and, and where you can monitor things and where you can you know, enact policies. Um, having something like, you know, the security co-pilot where you can just talk in, in natural language and actually get some of that threat hunting or get some of those configurations done quickly without having to navigate your way through. And I think that's going to really increase the productivity of analysts. Um, there, is, there are also um, tools out there that you can actually start looking um, at alerts and then the natural language processing will actually look at the alert and then explain in plain English what that alert is back to the analyst. And I think that that helps with the, that comprehension. Um, and then we've got Google who've released um, their, their Google Cloud AI workbench. Now they bought Mandiant a while ago. Mandiant's been working on some AI technology and collaboratively they've built um, a large language model that it's actually tuned specifically to security called SecPalm. And, and I think having those AIs that are specifically built around dealing with security and security and vulnerabilities and just even the language of security and having those integrated into tools, I think is going to take us a long way. So this is always a cat and mouse game, right? I mean, security was... Race. Yeah. Yeah, it's an arms race. So, Security was one, uh, but now AI within cybersecurity is going to make things a lot more interesting. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think it's also going to help. We, we talk about a, a global skill shortage uh, in security, and it's very hard to, to skill people up on the job um, because they're so busy you know, doing their day job. And I think we can actually use AI to start uplifting people's skills so we can actually... I think there's certainly cases where you could take a level one SOC analyst and augment them with the right AI security tools and get them operating as a, a level two analyst and get a level two operating as a level three. So I think it can actually provide uplift uh, right across security. And, and tools like ChatGPT are really great for, you know, things like answering questions about security, explaining security concepts, um, you know, we've got tools like Microsoft's um, GitHub Copilot, you know, they, they can actually help people write better code by identifying vulnerabilities in them. I've seen people use it, just even pasting code into ChatGPT and it identifying, you know, common security vulnerabilities in that code. So I, I think the more the security industry leverages AI, and I think they're doing that very rapidly, faster than, than I thought they were going to do it, uh, I think that's going to help upskill the whole security community. Thanks for sharing that. Conversely, is there risk that uh, or concerns that you have in your mind? What, what makes you worried nowadays? About AI in particular? Insecurity. AI, I believe, could be one. I think we can quite easily switch and say, you know, like um, there, there are probably large groups of people figuring out how to use AI um, to advance attacks, right? So, yeah. so that's, that's very clear. Uh, we can talk about that as well. Uh, would be great if you do. And also broadly as well for cybersecurity, what what concerns you nowadays? Oh, look, I I think um, you know ransomware and nation states is certainly the thing that that keeps me up at night. 
Um, I think that that is, as we discussed previously, that that is the predominant threat um, and something that we just have to keep um, vigilant, you know, keep uplifting our security controls, keep uplifting our resilience. So not, not just the, the protect and detect, but, you know, can we actually recover? Can we perform a business continuity or a disaster recovery exercise to emulate you know, bringing all of our systems back online or restoring all of our systems from backups, for example. So just building that that kind of resiliency into everything we do. Um, because whether organisations like it or not, no matter how much they spend on security, um, the attackers only have to find one way in. And at some point, if you have been breached, you are going to actually have to exercise your, your BCP and, and disaster recovery policies or plans rather. There is a view in the industry that the best cyber uh, professionals, they, they come from environments like, let's say, the military, or they come from the big tech environment, right? So if you have worked in a security team in Microsoft or Google or Facebook, then when you go out in the industry, you'll be able to do good work and the demand is very high. Equally, if you have worked in the military, for example, if you have worked in Israel's Unit 8200, then you know, you, you, you're part of a very amazing community. But then the cyber risk is, is so vast and big that it's difficult for, for these folks. Basically, the risk is far larger than the supply of talent available to address the risk right now. Right? Yeah. So in your, in your view, what can regular product managers, developers, designers, and business leaders do to get into a good position from a cyber resilience perspective? And these guys are the ones, they, they are basically not from the elite and, you know, well-connected and, and trained groups that I, was, I spoke about earlier. What can the normal person do? Yeah, yeah. right. I, I, I really liked your analogy about, um, you know, coming out of some of Israeli's military because they seem to have such amazing security startups. And I, and I think that comes down to a mentality. You know, they've, they've actually dealt, you know, with conflict and I've noticed that some of the best security people, and I'm, I'm slightly biased because I was a, a pen tester, but some of the best security people I know actually came out of pen testing because they saw what was actually possible and then they can go and implement the countermeasures um, because they have that, that deep knowledge. But I think it's almost unreasonable to expect the product managers and the developers to come looking for security. It's really up to us to help them and guide them, provide them that security awareness training. And I don't necessarily mean traditional security awareness training, you know, where we click next, 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 but, you know, taking them through real world scenarios or getting them to have a look at not just the report that the pen tester does, but actually watching a video of the pen tester. And um, I've been in teams where we've used videos of someone actually breaking into something um, as a really good tool to show to management and developers to actually show them how easy it was often um, because you know hacking has kind of got this little you know mystique about it where where people think you know it's all you know matrix screens and you know people in black hoodies um, working on on terminals and consoles actually it, it's up to us to educate them uh, all the way along and rather than you know just saying security says you can't do this it should be yes you can do this but these are the things you need to do along the way to make sure that you're delivering a secure product or you're building a secure product so yeah I, I, I don't think it we're going to get those those product people 
coming and looking for security. They're all, they're all about getting their products to market uh, and services to market as quickly as possible. And um, as security practitioners, we should be helping them to do that in a secure way by guiding them. Excellent. And, you know, as a, uh, in building companies in the past, one of the things that I realized that we should build a more smoother interface with the security professionals. What I mean by that is it's not just awareness. What you shared, I think, will benefit the audience, uh, our audience tremendously. Uh, additionally, the smoother interface part I think we should add here is if let's say your designer is writing a design spec or your product manager is writing products, product requirements document or the engineer is writing an engineering spec, in those specs, there has to be a section which talks about security because when you're designing an API, you know, authentication, authorization, tokenizing it has to be there, right? And we have to think about how do we interface with our, with our counterparts in the security team right at the time when we're designing it and, and definitely before shipping it. Because if you're thinking of bringing the security professionals, you know, folks like yourself asking you for your opinion and guidance after things are in production, things are a lot more uh, dangerous and risky, right? So I feel in the development life cycle, um, we should build a smoother interface where we, we work with our security uh, counterparts closely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think there's two aspects to that. Uh, if we look at the developers uh, and the engineers, I think we really need to be, you know, back to security awareness training, we need to be teaching them how to do threat modeling, right? Because they can't necessarily think about how the, the countermeasures until they've actually really thought about the threats. So we need to give them the framework uh, and the policy saying, okay, you must use encryption and this is what passwords look like in terms of strength and length and, you know, an MFA. So give them the requirements if you like. Um, because security is, is basically a functional requirement inside of software. And we need to treat it like a functional requirement. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be special. Just like, you know, security vulnerabilities are just bugs, really, at, at the developer, but with bigger implications. So I think we need to be training the developers on threat modeling to get them thinking about the threats and understanding the threats. And certainly... If we look at something as simple as OWASP top 10, you know, just getting them to understand those basics, but get them to threat model. And then what a lot of uh, larger companies are doing is the, the BISO role, so the, the business information security officer. And that person's actually embedded inside of a business unit. So you, rather than security being separate, they're actually part of that business unit and helping to drive security outcomes as part of that team rather than being from a separate team, you know, trying to influence. So they're, they're influencing from the inside out rather than from the outside in. Thank you. That's very practical, actionable. Thanks for sharing your points of view. With that, we've come to the end of our discussion today. And there's a lot of insights that we have gleaned, which would be, we'll be summarizing and sharing to our teams and our audience over time. So thanks so much for your time today, Charles. Are there any final words that you'd like to share uh, to the folks? Uh, no, nothing comes to mind, but thank you very much for, um, for having me on and uh, I hope some people got some um, little nuggets or gems out of our conversation that they can action. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you.